Hey guys, this is Cabain. Today I want to talk about the significance of the Jesus Prayer from a biblical theological point of view. Meaning I want to go beyond simply noting that the wording of the Jesus Prayer is taken from the New Testament and look at the ways in which the role that the Jesus Prayer plays in the theology and life of the church as a whole connects with some of the major canonical themes which stitch scripture together as a singular witness of Jesus Christ by the Spirit, particularly through the idea of the name of the Lord. Before getting into the content of this video, let's begin with a prayer and then I'm going to do my typical plug for my Patreon. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, the trampling down all carnal desires, and enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things uh, that are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God, and unto thee do we ascribe glory together with thy fathers and everlasting, then all the good and life-creating spirit, but now and ever, feeds, feeds, amen. So, on the Patreon, uh, I want to thank everyone who has become a patron. It is really very much appreciated. Um, but if you haven't yet become a patron or a YouTube member, uh, please do uh, consider becoming one. Producing this volume of content uh, requires a very substantial time investment, which can only really be sustained through a strong base of patrons and members. And that's not just the time uh, producing these videos, but doing all the takes, because there really are several takes, some of which can be quite lengthy that don't end up working out, uh, doing the outlines, uh, doing the, you know, private discussions, which I find a tremendous amount of fulfillment over, but it does take a significant amount of time. Um, so if that's something which you get something out of, um, please, and if you're in a financially good spot, uh, please consider uh, helping contribute to the channel. It's my goal to keep as much content available for free to a general audience as possible. Um, so if you're able to do so and you believe this content to be useful, your help really is profoundly appreciated. So several people have asked me, why don't I just paywall some of my longer videos? And I think if I did that, I could get more patrons, but I really only want to do that as a last resort. And right now, given the growth of the Patreon, if it continues, I should be able to avoid doing that. And I have to balance that with giving my patrons something for their money. So it's kind of a, um, the difficulty is in making the choice between kind of the PBS model where you make a donation and you kind of get something for your donation versus doing the actual full monetizing model where you're just paying directly for the bonus content itself. I want to get the best of both worlds as much as I can, but that's the situation um, that uh, we find ourselves in. So um, I just wanted to make it clear kind of the dilemma from my perspective here. So the first two tiers provide exclusive content. Uh, the highest tier provides at least one hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion every month. There's no upcharge if we go over time in these one-on-one -on -one discussions. Um, we do tend to go over time, but if you're bored out of your mind, obviously, you know, you can say, all right, later skater, but no upcharge if you're not bored out of your mind, you want to continue talking. 
Uh, you can also make a contribution of 99 cents per month in Anchor, link below. So if you're not a patron um, and if you are not interested in becoming a patron, that's fine. But uh, just do consider making a 99 cent per month contribution because if a lot of people make that, given the size of the audience, um, I would say probably about half of my subscribers are active subscribers. So a lot of them are, are quite uh, – are back from 10 years ago or so. But uh, if you're an active subscriber, if you don't want to become a patron, that's fine. But uh, consider – making that 99 cent contribution because that can make a very substantial difference. Um, you can also make a one-time contribution during this video premiere. And also I think in the lead up to the video premiere, it's under the chat box. There is the appropriately labeled dollar sign that's to the right of the video. Um, so by my just disposition, uh, I, I'm quite uncomfortable opening every one of my videos this way. And the only reason that I'm doing so is because it really is what's keeping the lights of the channel running. So I don't want to commit like a big faux pas and, nickel and dime people um but that is just the long and short of it uh so eventually the goal is to not have to you know push it as much uh and also to get enough through patreon that i can reduce the ads and still afford to produce this sort of content on a regular basis uh i think that'll be possible at some point but it the the more patrons I get now, the sooner that will be possible. So uh, thank you all for bearing with me, and uh, let's get into this video. So to get to the central subject of the video, the Jesus prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And in exploring the biblical significance of the Jesus prayer, we want to do more than simply note the fact that the Jesus prayer is a quotation of certain passages in the New Testament. This is, of course, true, but it doesn't tell us what the actual significance of the Jesus prayer is, nor does it explain why it is so central in the spirituality of the Eastern Church. It's not the only prayer which forms the basis for the so-called prayer of the heart or unceasing prayer, but it is the most well-known one, and it is, I think, the one which has been most used by the Spirit in, in the history of Orthodoxy to facilitate the gift of unceasing prayer or prayer of the heart. Now, you should be able to tell just from the structure of the prayer itself that the significance, which we will elucidate, is rooted in the idea of the name. If you know something about scripture, you know that the idea of naming is at the core of what it says about God, because the God of the Bible is not a God who is wholly transcendent and cannot be legitimately spoken of. He is rather a God who makes himself known. We must be very careful not to overemphasize that aspect of God in which he says you are a God who hides himself and ignore the other half of the story, which gives significance to the first half of the story, because God is both hidden and revealed. And his hiddenness, his transcendence, is not a statement that God cannot be known. It is rather a statement that however much of God we know, there is always more of him to be known, which is why, by the way, eternal life is not boring. Some people ask the question. It's not a terrible question. Won't we eventually just want to cease existing because won't we get so bored? But what is boringness rooted in? Well, it's in the idea of repetition without any newness. But God is infinite. There's always more of him to be known. Imagine if you have to count from one up to infinity, but every number along that chain is the most interesting thing you've ever encountered in your life. 
Well, then you will never be bored. It doesn't matter how long you go on, there's always something new to identify. So the God of Scripture is a God who makes himself known. He is a God who reveals himself as well as a God who transcends everything which is revealed. Well, the name of the Lord in the New Testament is Lord Jesus Christ. So throughout the scriptures, whenever God develops his relationship with his children, that development tends to be associated with two things. First of all, a new accent on his own name, or perhaps a particular name comes to the fore. For example, in the period of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, the most prominent name is El Shaddai, usually rendered God Almighty, which I think is a pretty good rendering. It doesn't capture everything about what's going on there, but it captures, I think, the central idea. Well, then in the book of Exodus and the covenant that is made therein, the name of God is the Tetragrammaton, yod Hey, vav Hey. That is the name which is disclosed to Moses, which sums up this statement that I am who I am. And the phrase I am who I am also contains within itself, on account of the way that the language works, the idea that I was who I was and I will be who I will be. That's why in the book of Revelation, Jesus is identified as he who was and who is and who is to come. That is in Greek in the Greek language, an exegesis of the significance of I am who I am. He is he who inhabits eternity. Well, when God identifies himself by the Tetragrammaton, he does not thereby set aside El Shaddai, or the revelation that was given to the patriarchs. Nor should we take from this text the idea that the patriarchs actually were totally unaware of the Tetragrammaton or the specific use of those letters to refer to God, as some biblical critics have uh, suggested. When God says in the book of Exodus, by my name the Lord I have not made myself known to the patriarchs, it means that by those things which are signified in the name of the Lord, he had not made himself known to the patriarchs. Because El Shaddai signifies the God who is powerful to fulfill those things which he promised. And uh, the Tetragrammaton signifies he who was and who is and who is to come and who is thereby able to give birth and give existence to that which does not exist. So Paul says in Romans chapter 4, he calls into existence those things which were not. And in Exodus, uh, he calls into existence a nation which had not existed as a nation before. But in the act of making himself known to a greater degree with a new name, he also endows his people with a new name. So in the period of the patriarchs, the, uh, uh, the people of God are generally known as the Hebrews. And then in the period of the Exodus, they are generally known as Israel. By the time of Jesus, they are generally identified as the Jews or the Judahites. And then we all take on the name of the Lord in being called Christian. So the New Testament uses this word Christian uh, three times. It begins as a derogatory term, but then, be then becomes a term of exaltation. And in that very process, we can see something about what it means to take on the name of the Lord. For it is the cross of Christ, which most fully and completely reveals the inner character of God. And that begins as an attempt to degrade the Lord, but comes to be a sign of his exaltation and his glory. Thus, 
The Gospel of John speaks of Jesus as being lifted up on the cross. So the cross is not only a preparation for his exaltation, it becomes a form of his exaltation. Now, if name embodies character, then God's speaking of his name and our reception of that name and speaking back of the name to him, well, that is what allows us to become united to God. Because God's knowledge of himself is embodied in the word which pre-exists eternally in his mind. The Father looks upon the Son and sees himself in the face of the Son and thus knows himself. Knowledge is something which always takes place between two distinct subjects. We don't have time to go into this right now, but this conception of knowledge and this conception of the love which follows from it is foundational to the theology of the Trinity and why the Christian vision of God is so um, superior to any other vision of God which has ever been suggested. The Father sees in the face of the Son himself because in the Son he knows all things which there are to be known for in him all things move and live and have their being and in him all existence is made possible. And he knows the Son through the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who carries the love of the Father to the Son and then reciprocates that love from the Son to the Father. For more details on this, you can see my discussion of the Filioque, um, but I don't want to get onto that as a tangent right now. But the fundamental point here is that the word, the Logos of God, is the summation of everything that can be said and known about God, and it exists eternally in the Father as the pre-eternal Son. And so that knowledge of himself, of his own divinity, which is interior to his heart, becomes, through the Holy Spirit, interior to our heart. As the Apostle Paul says, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The precondition for speech is knowledge, and knowledge persisting through time is called memory. All things exist in God by his memory of them. All things exist because God is at every moment willing them to exist in exactly the form that they do, which is why we are told that the regular order of things is rooted in the covenant by which God freely makes himself available to creatures. It's in Jeremiah, rooted in Genesis 9. And that's why we're told in Genesis chapter 8 that the turning point of the flood, the world has collapsed in on itself, heaven has fallen down on earth, and the earth has burst open and shot forth water to heaven. And all that's left is a miniature representation of the world in this three-story cosmic model, which we call the Ark, sanctified by the mediation of a high priestly figure, Noah, whose name means rest. And we are told in Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah. And God's memory of Noah is then expressed in the Spirit of God, again, blowing over the face of the waters. The wind from God blows over the waters. And God thus remembers Noah, brings him into his mind, exalts him into his own presence, and through that exaltation, gives renewed existence to the whole creation. That's Genesis chapter 9, when God formally uh, declares the covenant to Noah, 
this is uh, chapter 9, uh, verse uh, uh, verse 11. I established my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Note this phrase, cut off. This anticipates circumcision by which God is going to establish another covenant. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you. And every living creature that is with you for all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between you, me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, note here that God's covenant with the creation is not a covenant which is unstructured by a specific hierarchy. Rather, the covenant is with the earth precisely in those creatures having existed in and with Noah. Noah is at the head of the ark. He is the one who constructed the ark, and the animals that were gathered into the ark are consecrated, made holy, set apart for God, precisely because of their being entrusted to Noah. And God's recreation of the world is centered in his memory of Noah and his memory of Noah in himself. Because notice that just as God remembered Noah and the spirit or the wind of God uh, flowed over the waters and began this process of recreation in Genesis 8, so also the memory of God here is linked to the rainbow, a manifestation of divine brightness or light. You see in the book of Ezekiel and then in the book of Revelation, that the rainbow is a manifestation of God's spirit. So the wind you can see as a symbol or a sign of God's spirit from uh, a tactile point of view. You feel the wind. And light is a manifestation or sign of God's spirit from a visual point of view. You see the light. And of course, in both cases, the tactile and the visual qualities signify that which is genuinely uncreated. Created light is a sign of genuine, true, uncreated light. But let's walk back a little further. At the end of Genesis chapter 8, there's a phrase that I'd like you to pay attention to. In view of the fact that our discussion is about the Jesus prayer, which is called the prayer of the heart when it becomes unceasing by the gift of the Holy Spirit, what are we told? This is chapter 8, verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered ascension offerings on the altar. Okay, so it's, it's often rendered burnt offerings. And while the offering was whole burnt, the word Allah does not mean whole burnt. It means ascension because it's the offering by which the person who is worshiping ascends into the presence of God. We are carried into the presence of God by the Spirit. This smoke represents the Spirit. Very often the animal is, actually I believe always in the Ascension Offering, the animal is first cut up, so it's divided, and then it's reunited in a single cloud of smoke. So the idea of division in the flesh, and then reunification, resurrection, glorification in the spirit, that is a major type that runs throughout Scripture. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now look at what goes on here. We have two hearts going on. We have what God says in his heart, 
and then what we, we have what he says about the heart of man. So it is about what is interior to the life of God and what is interior to the life of man. And we don't have time to get into this right now, but what goes on in this covenant is expanded in a prophetic curse on Canaan, which is related to the death penalty, because what's going on is God is stopping the development and the expansion of evil, because the evil is like a disease, and God is cutting it off again and again, so that you never see something like happened before the flood, where evil got to such a point that the creation collapsed in on itself. There was only Creation only exists in man, because man is the image of God, man is the instrument by which God upholds the world, but man's evil, that is his tendency to reject existence itself, meant that creation begins to decay into non-being. So what's going on in the sacrificial liturgy, both in Noah's case and Israel's case and in every other case, is this is the focal point of a dialogue which exists between God and his creatures. And it is precisely in and through that dialogue that the creation is held in existence. All things are made through the Logos, through the Word. Things are held in existence by the Spirit in the Word that is in the mind of God. Spirit, remember, searches the deep things of God. We're told that the Logos, the pre-existing eternal Logos of God, exists at the heart of the bosom of the Father, just as we exist at the heart of the bosom of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And the Logos is the archetype, the paradigm, for the creation of man in the image of God. So what is it that makes man unique? What is it which distinguishes him from all of God's other creatures? Well, it is man's capacity to enter into a dialogue with God. We see this in Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world... And in the act of that creation, he is systematically giving names to all of his creatures. But as the six-day creation progresses, God's relationship with his creatures becomes more and more intimate, more direct. God gives a verbal command to be fruitful and multiply to the first animals he creates, the cloud of birds and the cloud of fish he creates on the fifth creation day. But it's on the sixth creation day that we are told that God first speaks to one of his creatures, that is man. And God speaks to man because it is man who has the potential to be included in this dialogue that is to actually respond to God's call, to reciprocate his verbal self-expression. And when man is given his first task to train him to take dominion, to be God's partner in the creation, or the continuing creation of the world. God creates through the world, uh, God creates through the word, that is, and man becomes a partner in God's creative work, uh, chiefly through his speech. Speech both develops our relationship with other human beings, which develops the world, and it develops our understanding of the world internally. We have an internal dialogue, which is crucial for our actual understanding of things. Without language, we would not be able to keep complex concepts and their interrelationships in our mind for very long. Well, man is given this task to look at the creatures God created, to apprehend their nature, and then to identify them with a verbal sign. So this, is, this helps capture a way in which language is sacramental. The thing which is signified by words is always attached in one way or another to the sign. So when Adam looks at the animals and he gives them a name, 
this is the very process by which he has increased in his understanding. So it's not as if he could just give them any combination of syllables struck his fancy. Or, put more precisely, only the right things would strike his fancy, because Adam was, at this point, unfallen. He developed in his understanding of God's creation, and because of that, he comes to understand what God wanted him to understand, that it is not good for man to be alone. Now let us recall that throughout the creation days, God has been repeatedly saying that, or repeatedly identifying his creatures as good. As we're actually going to quote later in this discussion, the divine glory, this uncreated revelation of his inner life, is called the goodness of the Lord. And this anticipates a very significant theme in traditional Christian theology, which is that we identify a thing as good according to its degree of correspondence with the archetype or logos in the mind of God. So to take a, an, an easy example, which I think we've talked about before, what is it which makes a circle a good circle? When we talk about a perfect circle, we mean a circle which exactly corresponds to the mathematical ideal of perfection. When we speak of a good person, this usually has an ethical context to it. But what makes it ethical is the fact that we have within the power of our choosing the ability to realize what we were meant to be or to go against what we were meant to be. There is an archetype of a good human being, and that archetype is the goodness of the Lord, because man sums up all the world in himself. That's why he's able to make sense of the world as a coherent, integrated whole. Man thus is enabled to extend God's creative work into the world, because what is the creation? Well, it's an imprint of the goodness of the Lord. And so man, in seeing what is good and what is not good for himself, begins participating in this creative work of God. He sees that there is no creature fit or good to be a helpmate for him. God thus divides him in two and reunites him, male and female, and thus man has drawn closer to his final destiny. He has drawn closer to being more perfectly human, because to be more perfectly human, he must be in communion with other hypostases uh, of like nature, because that is who God is. God exists as a trinity of persons, and it is not as if this is a contingent fact about him. He, his divinity is uh, subsists only in his Trinitarian communion. Now, it's quite significant that the first lesson in man's development into the fullness of God's glory takes place through animals. Animals are a kind of living textbook by which man understands something about the life of God. We see in the life of King Solomon one way in which this plays out. Solomon brings all sorts of birds and beasts from the end of the earth to Jerusalem. He studies them. He writes proverbs on them. He understands their deepest nature because he understands that every beast is a particular declaration of something about God and of man and of the world, and thus he is able to draw lessons from them. Look at the ant, you sluggard. This is not some kind of cute little um, uh, uh, bit of poetry which has nothing to do with the way the world really works, but this captures something about the deepest meaning of what a creature of God really is. And then we have it after he looks at all the animals, we have the Queen of Sheba comes and they engage in a dialogue that is centered 
on difficult questions of wisdom, likely difficult questions of politics. You know, uh, as a major power in the international situation of his day, there's all sorts of moral ambiguities which he has to work through. And during the latter portion of his reign, we see that he does not work through them successfully. It's a moral ambiguity. You have all of these nations all around about you that could threaten you, that could threaten the life of your people. And one way to build alliances with them is to worship their gods, to marry their pagan daughters. But you see Solomon gets drawn into this he starts engaging in the international arms trade, and what do you know? That comes back to bite him because many of those same weapons that he sold are used to sack Jerusalem in the days of King Rehoboam when Shishak, king of Egypt, comes up against Jerusalem. So wisdom has to do with these moral ambiguities. And we'll get to, in a few minutes, one of the ways in which the life of the animals and their symbolic purpose has something specific to say to what is supposed to be the main topic of today's discussion when you cut out all of the tangents that we tend to go on. But all words, I want to make this, this point very clear, all words are creative in nature, merely by the fact of their being uttered. So we see throughout the book of Isaiah, one of the major themes is that God makes his purpose to stand through the utterance of his word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Jesus says, quoting the book of Deuteronomy. Man's life is a encapsulation of what it means for him to exist as man. And it is precisely through the word, as it is spoken and uttered, that man lives as man. And all words are creative in nature because what they do is they make manifest in relation to other subjects. That is, you speak one word. And you always speak it in relation to someone who apprehends or understands that word. And they make manifest that thing which is being signified. So you say the word bluebird, well, what goes on in, in a person's mind? It's not as if he has a choice in the matter. In his mind, if he knows what you're talking about, he will see an image of a bluebird. He will recall certain things associated with his experience of bluebirds, whether that's sight or in more direct experience. An old creation is sustained from moment to moment in the divine memory. So God's idea of what something is, his active, continued perpetuation of that idea in and through the Son and by the Spirit who expresses the Son. Just as you speak, well, guess what? Breath is going to come out whenever you speak. You don't have a choice in the matter. That part of our wiring symbolizes our archetype in God, the Holy Trinity. We speak, well, guess what? The Spirit is going to come out with our breath or the spirit is going to come out, our, our breath is going to come out with our words. All creation is sustained in the divine memory. God actively imprints his idea of what something is into contingency in the word by the spirit, and he thus makes it what it is. And by God's will, man has been included in this process. So God is pouring himself out into the stuff of nothingness. He creates the world in and out of nothingness. But in another way, he creates the world in and out of himself, when understood appropriately. He pours himself out and constitutes the world thereby. And because the world has been constituted in his outpouring of himself, it flows back into him. Okay, These two things are two sides of one coin. You can't have one without the other. This is called in, in, in Dionysian metaphysics, procession and reversion. 
The world proceeds out from God. Remember how we just used this word? Every word which proceeds from the mouth of God, the world flows out from God, and thus it flows back into God. Every river flows out, and it turns around and comes back in to its source. We see that uh, major theme throughout uh, the prophets, especially Isaiah. Jerusalem sends forth the river of life. It gives life to the nations, and then the wealth of the nations comes. It returns to Jerusalem. The apostles, they take the word of God out from Jerusalem in increasing distances from the city, and then they return back to Jerusalem. It happens repeatedly in the book of Acts. Now, because man has been put in the center of this, God pours himself out into the world through man, in man. The mode of God's outpouring into the world, the mode in which God realizes his goodness in the world, flows through man. Man freely can determine which of the goodnesses at any given point are more directly realized. And then man consecrates that which is poured out back to God. So this is the twofold action which is liturgically embodied in the Divine Liturgy or the Holy Eucharist. Thine own of thine own, we offer unto thee on behalf of all and for all. Thine own of thine own, it's all from God. This is all God's creation. The fact that we're offering it to God as a gift is itself a declaration of thanks that he has given us something to work. We do our work in the world. We increase its value by that work. The power by which we've increased its value is himself, the Holy Spirit. And then, as miniature embodiments of the creation and as persons who contain within ourselves the entirety of human nature, our offering of the world as we have worked it in the Eucharist represents that circuit which makes the world what it is. That's why Paul says, Romans chapter 1, what was the fundamental failure of the human family in the beginning? Seeking to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of man and mortal beasts and, and, or, and, and so on. Man decays into non-existence because you become what you worship and man began to worship that which had no life in itself. So no more, no more glory of the immortal God, that by which we are raised from the dead, but rather we become like mortal things, things which have no life in themselves, and so we become mortal. And Paul describes this in Romans 1 as not having given thanks to God. When we take as our ultimate good, as our ultimate end, that which has no life in itself, that is something other than God, it is a failure at bottom to give thanks. It is a failure to see the world as it is, that is, to know the world as it truly is, because if we knew the world as it was, we would see inside of it that God is present. And failing to know the world as it truly is means that our first reaction is a failure to give thanks. We fail to see what's right in front of our eyes, but if we do see what's right in front of our eyes, our first instinct is to give thanks to God. And that is why it's in the Divine Liturgy that this circuit, this outflow of stuff from God and the inflow back to God's heart is embodied in man who is the mediator, the uh, thread which ties the whole thing together by God's free willing. So all knowledge takes place in a 
mutual and interior movement. Fancy word being perichoresis, to mutually indwell. So remember that perichoresis, mutual indwelling, that begins as a way of talking about the relationship between Jesus's two natures, and then it's applied as a way of talking about the relationship between the three divine persons, at least in dogmatic theology, that technical term. Though the idea of the Father and the Son indwelling each other and through the Spirit indwelling us, that is something which is right there in an explicit way in the Gospel of John. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that we are in Christ and Christ is in you. He speaks of us being in the Spirit and the Spirit being in us. I mean, this is hardly something which is less than explicit in the New Testament. But knowledge itself is a way of mutual indwelling because we know a thing because it reaches out and it makes itself manifest in relation to us according to specific capacities which we have. So something which is blue, I forget if we've actually said this explicitly in this video, I've done several takes of the video, but um, something which is blue expresses itself in the visual quality of blue light, which is radiating out in all directions and being received by, apprehended by our capacity to see things, reaching out to grab it, and that tying together this movement, which meets in the middle, which embraces the two subjects in a single act, well, that is what knowledge is. It's an intellective union. And because we have then apprehended that thing, which is blue, we'll just say a blue flower, in our minds, if someone gives us a name for that blue flower and speaks that name to us when the flower is not present before our eyes, in our mind, we will see what is not immediately present. And thus, that is what memory is all about. See, I think the most important and the work that is done in a theological context is in taking the things which are most obvious, taking these most mundane of processes, and unpacking exactly what is going on in them. Because if God is declared in the world, and if God declares himself in the world at every moment, then the place which we should first look to find him are not those things which are unusual but those things which are most typical. The resurrection of Jesus does not tell us that the world is going to be thrown away, rather it tells us that we have been seeing the world in a wrong way. That's an insight that I've uh, taken from uh, N.T. Wright, who we've talked about uh, before. So what about the name of the Lord in a New Testament context? Well. The names of God, as they are provided in each of the biblical covenants, each signify something about what he has done in each biblical covenant. El Shaddai, God, in relation to the patriarchs, he is God Almighty, mighty to fulfill those things he is promising to the patriarchs. The Tetragrammaton, yad heh vav -Heh, uh, God who was and who is and who is to come, and thus who has the power to call into existence that which does not exist, that is a nation, a people Israel, is taken from a body of slaves and made into a nation. Deuteronomy says that you were once were the fewest of all the peoples, but now you are as numerous as the stars of heaven. Yadhe signifies not only who God is as the fullness, the overflow of being, but God's power to extend himself out in relation to others. That is why I think we see in Deuteronomy we are told that God puts his name on the temple and thereby brings Israel into his memory. Elsewhere, we're told that God's eyes are always on the temple of the Lord. 
God makes himself present in light through his eyes. This is symbolic language. But we see something because it is in light. Imagine that there were no light at all. It is not as if we would just see th things a little more dimly. Actually, light is that which creates the possibility of knowledge in the first place, which is why light is the first thing we see in creation week, because it is light which creates the possibility for there to be anything at all, anything at least which can be known. And in the New Testament, we see this especially in the Gospel of John, in the New Testament, that name which sets the covenant apart from everything which has come before is Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what we'll, we'll uh, I'll create part two right after I finish this and then I'll upload it tomorrow. But this is what we'll end on today. Philippians uh, chapter two, uh, Michael Gorman has called this the master story of Paul's apostolic message. Crispin Fletcher Lewis, um, I think has done some really interesting work on this text. So this, let me just read it to you. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. Um, this is Philippians 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So note, have this in mind among yourselves. This has to do with the church existing in one mind. And what is that one mind? It's the mind of Christ. Verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God's a thing to be exploited. Okay, that's that's what I'm most persuaded by. That That's what I think makes the most sense as a translation. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so a couple things to note. First of all, uh, name Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, on under, and under the earth. Well, this is a virtual quotation from the end of Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 says the following. This is verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said in me, a righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the seed of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So, so much is going on here. First interesting thing to note here is the word saved. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Well, the name which is in Philippians 2 is Lord Jesus Christ. What does Jesus mean? Jesus means the Lord saves. That, I think, is one of the reasons why Paul identifies this as the name which is above every name, the name which is given to Jesus. In the Septuagint, of course, the Tetragrammaton here would be rendered kurios, which is the word we find in Philippians chapter 2. But we also note that in Isaiah 45, 
the object of worship is the God of Israel, and in Philippians 2, the object of devotion is Jesus, and the language which is used for the allegiance to the God of Israel in Isaiah 45 is the language which is used for allegiance to Jesus in Philippians 2. It's very difficult to argue that this is anything other than a very exalted view of who Jesus is very early in the history of Christianity. But why is it that we are told that the name is given to Jesus? Well, what a name is, is it sums up, it captures those things which a person embodies, or those precisely in his accomplishments. So in the book of Revelation, we find that God is described as he who was and who is and who is to come. But then after God works his work of salvation, he's called he who was and who is, not who is to come. Why is that? Well, it's because God, at a certain point in the book, accomplishes the definitive act of salvation towards which the earlier portions of the book have been striving. Does that mean that God has changed, that he's no longer the same yesterday and today and forever? No, of course not. What it means is that he has made himself manifest such that what he was working towards and those promises by which he identified himself have been fulfilled. So according to this expression of his character in time, he acquires a somewhat distinct name because his relation to the creation in time has changed even though his relation to himself has not. That I think is what's going on in Philippians 2. Jesus is known in the Old Testament not as Lord Jesus Christ but as the Lord, the Tetragrammaton, yod heh vav -Heh. Uh, That name in the Old Testament usually refers to the second person of the Trinity. We see in Deuteronomy 32, for example, uh, uh, there is an accent of God Most High referring to the Father, and then uh, the Tetragrammaton, the Lord, referring to the second person of the Trinity, the Son. It's not something which you can take strictly, such that one does not uh, is, is not applicable to the others, but something which is a matter of emphasis and accent. And the same is true of the New Testament. The New Testament usually identifies Jesus as Lord, though it sometimes does refer to him as Theos, as God. But the typical divine title which is used of Jesus is Kyrios, Lord. And the literal rendering of the Greek text here is not actually Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's every tongue confess Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying others won't confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, but that I think the emphasis of the text has to do with Lord Jesus Christ being that which is on the lip of all mankind. Now, here's the rub. The word that I've just used, lip, is a word that is used throughout the scriptures to refer to the name of the deity to whom you are loyal. So, call on the name of the Lord. To call on the name of the Lord, that is first used in Genesis chapter 4. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. It is immediately followed by our being told of Adam's creation. God named him man. And that's the head of the first genealogy of Genesis. The second genealogy of Genesis, its head is Shem. And Shem means name. And that genealogy follows the story of the Tower of Babel or Babylon. At Tower of Babel, Babylon, we are told that the people who were there wanted to make a great name for themselves. They wanted to have one language and one lip. We have two distinct words here, language and lip. Corresponding to language and lip 
are city and tower. So they're building for themselves a tower and a city. And tower and city correspond in turn to Lippin language because tower, it is something like a ziggurat. You see these ziggurat kind of pyramids all over the world. You see them in Mesoamerica, you see them in China, you see them in India, you see them in, of course, the Near East and Egypt. Uh, look at the earliest pyramids in Egypt. It actually is of the stepped pyramid kind. The uh, more smooth Egyptian pyramid is clearly a development on that earlier model, which is the model you see prominent around all of the world's cultures. Um, but what it signifies is the ascent of man to the heavenly court, to the heavenly council. And as it is in a temple that one engages with this heavenly court, and one engages with this heavenly court by calling on the name of a particular deity, the unification of all mankind in Genesis chapter 11 is a unification around a false altar, which then gives birth to a wicked culture. Language and lip. Language corresponds to the city, that's the culture. And then lip corresponds to the religion, that God you confess. Now when God splits this project up, when he scatters them to the end of the earth, he is going to unify all mankind in one sense, but not in another sense. At Pentecost, you have 17 peoples who are gathered together in one city, and they confess the name of the Lord in their various distinctive languages. So we see in one sense, they retain their plurality, but in another sense, they are unified. Just as God is both one and three, so also man is one and many. And just as God creates man in the image of God by saying, let us, and making him male and female, so you have a plural unity, so also we see Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, God says, let us. So the name of the Lord refers to the confession, to call on the name of the Lord, that is, refers to the confession of the true God on your lip. Okay, that's why Genesis chapter 12 follows Genesis 11. Abraham is the seed of Shem, seed of the one who is called name. Shem is the head of the genealogy, which is not going to follow the way of Babel. Instead, man will not make a great name for himself, but God will make Abraham a great name. I will make your name great. And Genesis 12, I believe it's verse 10, Abraham built an altar. An altar is a miniaturized holy mountain. Ezekiel actually calls the altar holy mountain. And remember, a ziggurat, a pyramid, is an artificial holy mountain. That's what's going on at the Tower of Babel. And we're told that Abraham there called on the name of the Lord. In Isaiah 19, we are told that all nations, or pardon me, that Egypt and Assyria will have the same lip as Israel. That means they will worship the same God. Now, Egypt and Assyria, these are two of Israel's two historic oppressors at this point in time. Assyria has just exiled or is about to exile the northern kingdom. Egypt is the one who had them in bondage. The point being, God is going to redeem the whole world, all nations, signified in Israel's greatest historic enemies. All nations will be unified around the one lip. Now, because calling on the name of the Lord has everything here to do with liturgical worship, we find calling on the name of the Lord is utilized when we talk about baptism in the New Testament. But specifically, in Philippians 2, Lord Jesus Christ is that name which is confessed and to which the knees bow in heaven, earth, and under the earth. 
And that phrase comes from Exodus 20. And Exodus 20 speaks about not making a graven image of anything which is in heaven on earth or under the earth. In other words, everything which is in creation. So Jesus is the true image in whose incarnation the real form of God is displayed. And that is what we see in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, we have a major emphasis on the second commandment. Second commandment, Jesus says, you have, you have neither heard his voice nor seen his form. Referring back to Deuteronomy 4, where we're told that, uh, it might be Deuteronomy 5, where we're told that God uh, spoke to you by a voice but did not make known his form. Here, Jesus is criticizing those who are not legitimate heirs of the Exodus generation. He said, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what he did. He rejoiced to see my day. And at the beginning of the Gospel of John, the apostle says, we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father. No one has ever seen God, God the only begotten, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So it is in him that the true image of God is made known. And because the true image of God is made known by the incarnation of the Logos, by the incarnation of the Word, the confession on our lip, Lord Jesus Christ, is the preeminent symbolic embodiment. And by symbolic, I mean it sums up everything about our being joined to God. The confession, Lord Jesus Christ, on our lip, signifies us becoming interior to the heart of God by the Spirit of God becoming interior to our heart. And note, the name is Lord Jesus Christ of the glory of God the Father. As Paul says elsewhere, everything that you do, do it to the glory of God, because we exist in Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Everything that we do is done inside Christ. And Christ lives at every moment for the glory of his Father and for the love of mankind. So this is why Jesus is given this name, because the specific name which he acquires in his redeeming work is a name which embodies everything which he has done in his redeeming work. Peter speaks of Jesus having been made Lord in Acts 2, because the second person of the Trinity takes on these qualities, these names, in virtue of what he does during the economy of redemption. So I've marked it out here. Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, he is made Lord, exalted as Lord by the Father. From all eternity, he is at the bosom, at the right hand of the Father, but in becoming incarnate and in acquiring that position which he had from eternity, something new is accomplished. He brings many sons to glory, as Paul says in the epistle to the Hebrews. In his being made Lord, we can become lords over the world as well. We are joint heirs with Christ who thus are enabled by the Spirit to reign with him. Lord Jesus, Jesus means the Lord saves. Jesus is the personal name he takes on in recognition and expression of what he is accomplishing as Messianic King. So Lord corresponds to the Father, Jesus corresponds to the Son, and Christ, of course, Christ, Christos, means Messiah, and Messiah means anointed. And who is it that does the anointing? Everywhere and always, 
This is directly associated with the Spirit of God. So James Jordan is a very memorable way of talking about the significance that oil has in the Scripture. Oil is liquid light. We are anointed by oil in chrismation. Remember, chrismation is really usually considered an aspect of baptism. It's the completion or perfection of baptism. We're anointed into the holy priesthood by being joined to Jesus in baptism and then being anointed by the Spirit in chrismation. And thus we take on the name of the Lord. We are marked out as God's people by being marked out with his name. We are called Christians. We are called anointed ones who are anointed in him. So Lord, Father, Jesus, Son, Christ, Spirit. And so to say Lord Jesus Christ is to say in miniature the name of he who in, into whom we are baptized, which is Father, Son, and Spirit. Because it is the second person of the Trinity who is begotten eternally from the Father and made known in the Spirit who becomes incarnate for us men and for our salvation. And the structure of redemption specifically draws us into the pattern of divine life, which exists eternally as divine life. So redemption is coextensive with divinization. Now, one final thing before we wrap up for today. The prayer of Jesus makes the human creature that is the specific human person, an instrument of all mankind. Now, God creates man in his own image. And as I've argued many times before, the man who was created in the image of God does not refer to an individual human person, but rather refers to the human family. So whenever man is spoken of in this specific sense, it is the man who was created male and female. It is the man who is multiplied into 70 nations and then many more than 70 nations. It is a man, it is this man who is a plural unity. And this kind of existence specifically captures what it means to be the image of God because God himself consubstantially exists as three divine persons. And we're told in the great creeds of the church that Jesus is consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity and consubstantial with man, with us, as regards his humanity. So the fact that you have this thing called the double homoousion shows that the life of the Trinity is paradigmatic in a very important way for the way in which the church is united. And the church is united as the gathering place of all mankind. Church prays for the unification of all mankind in itself. That is to say, in Christ, Jesus injects life into the human family and restructures it, reconstitutes it, so that it can accomplish its job as being truly human. Now, when each of the divine persons exist, you can see my video on Christology to look at this in, in more detail. The existence of each of the divine persons is not an existence of one third of God at a time. Rather, the entirety of the divine nature subsists, that is, it finds its concrete realization in three distinctive rhythms or patterns of being. The fullness of God is fully actualized in the Father in relation to the Son and the Spirit. And the fullness of God is fully actualized 
in the Son in relation to the Father and the Spirit. And the fullness of God is fully actualized in the Spirit in relation to the Father and the Son. And this kind of existence is a other-centered existence. That's why the Spirit who dwells in us is sometimes considered to be silent. I mean, we speak less directly about the Spirit than we do about the Father and the Son. Why is that? Well, it's because the Spirit is the one by whom we are speaking at all. And it is the disposition by nature of each divine person to point to the other two. The Spirit is always pointing us to the Father and the Son. Just as the Son comes into the world and says, I do not come to do my own will, but the will of my Father who sent me. And you think it's great when I'm here, but wait to see, you see what the Spirit will bring. Each divine person is always pointing to the other two divine persons, which is the way in which humility is something rooted eternally in the life of God. So we see that each divine person fully actualizes everything which is intrinsic to their nature. But the way in which it is fully actualized demands as a precondition the existence of the other two divine persons. And that is something we've already alluded to in relation to male and female in this very video. Man is created with one person, or as one person, but he only becomes fully what he ought to be in relation to those persons to whom he is bound. And this is something which is not a later retrojection of Christian dogmatics onto the text, when Adam says, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Well, bone of my bones, as we've talked about in other videos, uh, literally means self of myself. He comes to know himself in knowing the other. And then, Genesis 4, Adam knew his wife. This is not a euphemism, again, as we've spoken of before. This is a expression of the deepest meaning of the conjugal act, by which two persons who are one in nature and yet distinct from each other according to their personhood, one is male, the other is female, both are realizations of humanity, they become mutually interior to each other to such a degree that they create something new, a new human being is brought into the world. And so each human being, each human person is in itself a total expression of the entirety of human nature according to a distinct idiom, that is, according to a distinct way of being human. The same human qualities or energies or properties, whatever you want to call them, are realized in both male and female. But there's a male way of realizing all of these qualities, which are property humanity, and then there's a female way of realizing all of these qualities, which are property humanity. That is a way which that is a, a a way of being which mirrors the way in which God is God. In the Jesus prayer, in particular, manifests this kind of relationship. So you often read in the spiritual literature of the importance of not saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on X, a sinner. But it's always, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And what you do is you bring this other person whom you are praying for into your mind. And then you pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Because in doing this, you are mirroring what Jesus himself does. And we see this dynamic in the letter to Philemon. I think Philemon is 
the last of the named letters of Paul because after a fashion, it is an exegesis of Paul's entire ministry. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because in Philemon, what Paul does is he embodies everything that Jesus has done in relation to those who were slaves to sin. So Onesimus, I think the traditional reading here is probably the best. Onesimus is a runaway slave. He's come to be a partner of the Apostle Paul. And this is what Paul says. This is verse 17. If you consider me your partner, speaking here to Philemon, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this in my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. So here the relation that Paul has to Jesus, that all the wrongs he does have been charged to Jesus' account. All of those debts which Paul has spiritually have been made up by the infinity of Jesus' spiritual wealth. That is now extended into the world by Paul's becoming an embodiment of the hand of Jesus. And in this extension, those human connections, those threads which knit the human family together as a single fabric, which formerly were the links by which death spread from person to person, become the links in which life multiplies into the world. So C.S. Lewis speaks in Mere Christianity of this is a kind of good virus. Life is multiplying into the world because we become extensions of what Jesus is doing. And the, and the Jesus prayer is in many respects the summation uh, or, or, or is a summation, an embodiment of this relationship that we have. Because since everybody is an instantiation, every, cre every human creature is an instantiation of the same nature, which we ourselves are a subsistence of, everyone in one way or another exists in us. So Paul speaks of us as having one heart and one spirit. And the heart is the focal point of memory. So we remember someone in our heart. This is the biblical language for it. And we remember someone else in our heart and we direct our heart because the heart is also the instrument of willing. We, by memory, join ourselves to this other person and we direct our mind to look at Jesus. We have an influence on this other person as well. So if you look at my video series on prayer, I talk a bit about this, that your prayer can itself be the answer to prayer because what's going on in prayer is not just that we're asking God for something, but the spirit is in us and the spirit in us is creating connections between us and these other people to whom we are bound in one way or another, according to our degree and kind of relationship with them. And because prayer is creating a relationship between us and God through the spirit, and by that same spirit, a relationship is being created between us and other people, well, our relationship with God becomes a conduit by which the grace of the Spirit enters into the lives of these other people. And that is what the Jesus prayer is really embodying and saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Jesus in his high priesthood sums up all humanity in himself. He dies for the sins which were really ours. And we receive the life which is his until it becomes really ours. Um, and we become extensions of the life of Christ, not just in that we imitate him in his obedience, but that the very mode in which he redeems the world becomes ours as well. So that the church 
really is the body of Christ because it acts to redeem the others after the fashion of Christ's own redemptive work. So we'll have more to say tomorrow, uh, and I will talk to you then.